uh, you know, this is kind of embarrassing to say, but I think I've reached the point where uh, I've now told you all my stories, <laughs> at least the ones that I can tell from the pulpit. So I'm, I'm pretty positive I have told you at some point this story before, but I can't remember when. So if you've heard this before, um, please give me a pass. But years ago, uh, my family was visiting my in-laws, and uh, it was during the warm weather and where you could fish, and there's this pond down from my in-law's house. You can just walk right down the backyard, and you can fish from the, the bank. And uh, so had some off time, and I was fishing, and I caught something, small fish, and uh, was going to, you know, take the hook out, just release it. And it was just one of those things where you could not reproduce this if you tried a thousand times. Right when I just had my hand in the right place, this fish did this crazy wiggle, and the, the lure went from his mouth into my finger. And the hook went all the way through where the barb had gone through. So there was no way to take it out without really tearing up my fingers. So I um, released the fish. And I, I went back in the house and I said, I think I need to go to the ER because I just, I, I can't fix this. So we go to the local ER and um, there's a guy there. I don't know if he was a PA or a nurse, but it was a man. And, and he, um, he said, well, look what we're going to do is uh, we're going to inject some local anesthetic and then I'm going to snip the end of the hook off where the barb is and then when your finger's dead and I'll ease it out and then we'll, we'll clean it up. And I said, sounds good. So uh, he gets the, gets the um, syringe or whatever and he's about to inject this, this painkiller and he said, this is going to hurt. And when your brain hears that, you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, how much is it going to hurt? And he said, it's going to hurt. <laughs> so I just kind of gave my finger, <laughs> took my medicine. But it was just very honest. Like, no, you, it's, it's going to hurt. And in a lot of ways, this passage is the writer of Hebrews saying to his readers, God loves you. God wants you to finish this race that we talked about last week. If you were here, we looked at the passage right before this, that, that the life of the Christian is, is not a sprint. It's not even a 26.2. It is an ultra marathon that takes your whole life. He wants you to finish it for the joy before you. And if you're going to finish it, you'll have to be trained. And it, it's going to hurt. And it's really hard for us to decouple hurt and harm or to decouple hurt and you're against me. Because what he's putting right together is God loves you. God is for you. God's raising you. If you're his child, he's raising you. And there's going to be some hurt. It's very realistic. So let's look at this passage. This is right on the heels of the language of life as this race set before us by God. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Consider him, he means Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we've just prayed for many of our our friends and our brothers and sisters who they've lost people they loved and maybe are about to lose others. Um, They have endured loss. They've endured pain. They might be sick themselves, besides all the other trials of this life. And we're reminded even just from the prayers that this race is hard and we want to live by sight and cave in for joy now instead of joy later. And we pray that you'd help us. Uh, Help us even through your word right now. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me start off with a question, and uh, you may or may not have ever thought about this, but I I do think it's a question worth raising. The Bible talks about the reality of the wrath of God, and and sort of the ultimate demonstration of the wrath of God, besides the cross, is hell, condemnation, ultimate condemnation. But the Bible also speaks about that in this present life, a person can be under the wrath of God. And it's not yet fully manifested in that person's life. But let me ask you this. What would you expect that to look like in this life? And what might come to mind is somebody that just 
you look at his or her life and it just seems like this person is snake bit. They're just, just pain and setbacks and loss and like uh, all the obstacles are in the way. And surprisingly, the New Testament says something very different. It, one place, kind of a classic passage about this is in the first chapter of Romans. It describes people upon whom the wrath of God is showing itself. And the way it describes it is that God gives these people over to the life they want. And so what, what that means is what the wrath of God can look like is that your life goes great. It goes so great that you don't need Him. You don't feel the need of Him. You don't feel empty. You might be empty. You know, physically, there's things that can happen to your body where you feel full, but you're not full. Or you feel hungry, but your stomach is full. Where the feelings and the reality don't match up. The same can happen in your soul. The person can be empty, but he or she doesn't feel empty. They feel amazing. I mean, this can be a person under the wrath of God could be a beautiful person looking at you and with a smile saying, I just feel like life is such a gift. And so it's, it's really a cautionary tale that that could be the wrath of God. And the reason I wanted to put that before you is that the converse is true. And the converse is really something that the writer is bringing out in this passage that you can be, and really the, the norm that we should expect is that if you believe the gospel and your faith is in Jesus Christ and you belong to God and he loves you as his child, that you'll experience hurt. And I'm, I'm going to try to tease this out in a second. It's not him getting back at you. It's not condemnation. It's not judicial. It's love. But it hurts. And again, it's hard for us to decouple hurt and you're against me. He's for us and he lets us hurt. He doesn't let us hurt as much as we could. If God let us hurt as much as we could, we would know it. But he lets us experience hurt. The word that's used throughout this passage for discipline is a Greek word, paideia. And it, it seems to be hard to translate. Discipline is a good translation, but discipline can just sound like nothing but, but whoopings. <laughs> and discipline really is a larger thing. I'm going to use the word training. That it, it, it certainly encompasses Moments where you have to hurt to get to the next level. You have to hurt to learn the lesson or to change. But it's the all-encompassing program of training that is the Lord's paideia. It is the Lord's discipline. So I'm going to call it training for purposes of, of this morning. And I want to develop two things. First off, training means belonging. I've really already said that. But I want to dig into that more. Training means belonging. Training enables change. Training enables change. So let's start off with training means belonging. 
Let me, let me zoom the camera out for a second, and then we'll zoom back into the passage. Zooming the camera out, it's fairly standard fare to hear language of, hey, we are all God's children. And when you look in the scriptures, what you find is that we are all God's creation. We are all God's creatures. We all bear his image. Every human being, religious or not, wherever he or she is, every human being bears the image of God. We are all neighbors. But the scriptures also say we are not all God's children. And naturally, none of us are God's children. We have to be adopted the way someone who's not your child can only become your child through adoption and really be your son or really be your daughter. God has to adopt us to make us his children. How do I know if God has adopted me? And what the writer is saying is, this is not the only diagnostic in the world, but one diagnostic you can use is, in your life, do you see the presence of him training you? And disciplining you, even where it hurts. Um, think, okay, here, here's the positive statement of it. Look in verses 5 through 7. There's a quote from the Old Testament, from Proverbs, but it really fits hand and glove, so, it, so the writer quotes it. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. You know, don't scoff at it and don't get depressed by it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises. And that is really the language of the spanking, the whipping. He chastises every son whom he receives. And then in the writer's own words, verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Now, let me just state it. When God trains you even with pain, he is showing you that he loves you. And let's state it negatively. Uh, we, we could put it this way. No discipline, no dad. No discipline, no dad. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. And not sons. The old King James says, You're a bastard child. Strong language. If it's not there, you don't belong to him. Now, again, not to insult anybody's intelligence, well, thou, that sounds like discipline is really important. That sounds like training is something that I would want in my life. If that's the diagnostic, I want it, I want that light to be green. So what's the rub? The rub is the pain. Uh, look in verse 11. For the moment, now catch the contrast between the moment and later. Okay, right now is the moment, and then there's later. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, here's what I'm trying to to belabor and push on you is that somehow something that just we have gotten it's in the air it's in the water supply it's just kind of in the in the spaces that we walk through is the sensibility that if I love someone I must give them ease 
if I love someone, I must protect his or her ease. And it's not true. That love does not equal the, the, the protection of comfort and ease. Love equals the protection of connection and prioritizing connection. And, uh, you know, one of the most quoted things that C.S. Lewis ever said is that God whispers to us through pleasure, but he shouts to us through pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a sleeping world. And it's really true. And oh, oh, that it wasn't that way. I've said, I've stood up here and said to you so many times that when, um, when I have had the privilege of talking with some of you when you were pursuing membership in the church and learned more about your background, the story that I keep hearing over and over is not, you know what? Uh, I graduated magna cum laude and uh, I, my starting salary was double what I thought it would be. I was experiencing great health and I married the person of my dreams, and then I became a Christian. I've never heard that testimony. It's like in the midst of family fragmentation and physical disabilities and setbacks and discouragement and confusion, and then God breaks in. And it's not that, it's not that, and hey, so we are the religion for losers. I mean, in a sense, that's true. But it's to say, I, we are so stubborn. We live by sight so well, it takes pain to give us and impart to us the thing that God in his love is giving to us. And you know, in an earthly way, I know that it spoke about earthly dads and I feel like I don't want to spend 10 minutes qualifying. I know that not everyone had the sort of dad described here that like a dad who disciplined me because he cared for me and he did the best he could. Some of you had that, some of you did not. The writer is just speaking in sort of broad brush strokes. Back when parenting probably was a little bit more, there's kind of just one sort of model of doing it. He said they did the best they could to try to give you what, what you needed. But think about this. I bet that you have had, it might have been a coach. It might have been a really rigorous teacher. Uh, some of you who've been in the military, it might have been a leader in the military. You could even be a really good boss. Somebody who conveyed very clearly that your ease and your comfort is not what I'm waking up for in the morning. But they, but they loved you, and they cared about you, and they drew something out of you that could not come through ease or comfort. Um, when, when I was first becoming a Christian, and, and I think had, had become a Christian... In high school, there was a, um, a guy that invested in me, and he was really, a really good athlete. He played college football. And uh, I, I saw something that he posted this past fall. His high school football coach passed away, and, and he wrote sort of an homage to him. Let me read a little bit of it. Um, coach Buddy Crosby was a great man and instilled discipline and fear in a lot of teenage boys and forced them to become men. It takes a lot to maintain the title of coach from a grown man. I could never call him buddy. He was always coach. He didn't care if he hurt your feelings. He only cared that you gave your best. He didn't care what your parents thought. He only cared that you were a valuable part of the team. He didn't care if you were the star or a bench warmer. A bench warmer. He only cared that you contribute. 
Funny how you so desire your coach's approval. He gave me a nice, rare compliment the spring of 1978. Funny, I remember the date. It meant so much. He was an old-school coach the way they ought to be. I got caught holding the first two plays of first game my senior year. He puts in parentheses, I wasn't holding, but films proved different. He pulled me from the game. I wanted to change teams rather than go to the sidelines and see that red-faced, scarred snarl. I never got caught holding again. And get this, coach, thank you for being my high school coach. Thank you for caring. Thank you for never compromising your standards of expectation of my best. Thank you for beating the wimp out of us and teaching us to overcome adversity by being a fighter and not a whiner. Thank you for helping us grow up to become men. Thank you for being a coach of football and of life. I love you, Coach Crosby. I'd never said that, parentheses, too afraid. You changed my life. Now, what do you hear? He was hard on us. He hurt us. I love him dearly. I know he cared. Now, it's an imperfect analogy. You know, I don't want your great takeaway this morning to be, the triune God is a lot like a high school football coach. But we need earthly examples that someone can train me and not just be terribly worried about my comfort level because they care and because they're growing me. Let me just state it plainly. It's jarring to say it this way, but it's inescapable from the passage. God hurts those he loves. Now, what some of you just heard me say is God harms those he loves, and that is not the case. And that is a real distinction. God hurts those he loves to grow them and to change them and so that they can finish the race and be at his right hand. It's probably, um, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it, it's probably the fact that we have such a difficult time decoupling uh, hurt and you're against me and letting hurt and you love me coexist. For, for parents, for those with children of their own, that probably lies behind why we struggle to some degree with discipline, at least part of the picture. That's probably why we are known around the world as under-disciplining parents. Because we cannot believe that love, deep affection, and hurt could coexist, but they coexist in God, from whom all parenting comes. Training means belonging, and training enables change. You know, pain gets discouraging. Can we all agree with that? Pain gets discouraging after a while. I've I've seen research that uh, one of the lead causes of depression can be chronic pain. You know, maybe somebody's back has hurt so badly, so long, they just have a tough time being happy anymore. So pain gets, it gets old. Uh, What is the end game? And again, you've already heard this, but Let me just stack these up. I'm going to go backwards. Let me start later in the passage and work backwards. Go to verse 14. 
strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, if you've got your thinking cap on, that should be a little bit of attention for you because I'm standing up here all the time saying, you're not saved by your obedience. I'm not saved by my obedience. We're not saved by what we do. And the writer just described a holiness of our lives without which you will not see the Lord. But what is he unpacking? He's just been talking about faith. Real faith bears fruit. If there's not some fruit there, there is no faith there. And we are saved by grace through faith. Your works don't save you. But if that fruit is not there, the saving faith that we need must not be there. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Those are high stakes. Look in verse uh, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Look in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. What is the end game of the pain? We've already said it. To run, to run well, to finish this ultramarathon. Yes, there is joy to be had in this life, but for the fullness of joy, for the pleasures that are at God's right hand, to finish that race and to be comfortable and happy forever. You know, I probably didn't explain myself well because what I said earlier is God is not committed to our ease and our comfort. Let me qualify that. God is not committed to our ease and comfort in this life. He's so committed to our comfort in the next life that he sent his own son who was not at ease and who was not comfortable for the next life. So then you get this great image in uh, verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Um, there's, there's been a lot of buzz over the last several years about there was a presentation given that got a lot of hits online about um, that it seemed to indicate that you can stand up straight, you can adopt what would be called power poses. And uh, one presenter said that it will raise testosterone, it will lower stress hormones, it will lower cortisol uh, just by adopting a certain posture. And then other research came along that said, no, that's not true. But wh- whether that physically is true or not, what people seem to agree about is that when people, and this is very convicting because I go slinky constantly. I mean, you probably watch me do it up here. When I see pictures of myself, I just go, ugh, stand up straight. When you stand up straight and square your shoulders and stick your chest out and raise your chin, what, whatever is or isn't happening with your hormones, which I don't really want to get into right now, you feel differently. You do tend to experience things differently. And the writer is saying, all right, you need to do that with your soul. It's really brilliant. He's saying, you know, you, you can embrace biblical truth, but the way it can look, and boy, I do this all the time, is, is that picture my body as my soul. That my soul is going like, ugh, this world is so fallen and I'm so fallen, and there's so many terrible things in the news, there's so many people hurting right now, it just seems like 
we're losing. And the writer says, okay, quit it. Stand up and square your shoulders and believe the good news and live out of that. Some of you have done this before. I bet some of you, and maybe you've never heard anyone describe it, some of you have had the experience where you're, you're kind of, you're, you're slouching and dragging through life and just kind of out of nowhere because God was at work in your life, you sort of went, hey, Christ rose from the dead and I belong to him and I'm not going to slink around anymore. And when you do that, it's almost an out-of-body experience where you're saying that and you're kind of off to the side going, woo, listen to you believe in the good news. But the writer is saying that should be normative. Yeah, the world has fallen. You're going to help it be less fallen by dragging? It's very convicting if you struggle with joy. Stand up and straighten your back and square your shoulders and know that Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you belong to him, you belong to him. And his father and your father is going to train you, and you're going to finish this race. Amen? Amen. There's some applications there. Be good fodder for community group discussions. What does slouching, what does dragging look like? It can look like sexual immorality. It can look like bitterness. Isn't that interesting that he includes bitterness? And first when I looked at that, I thought, I wonder why he brought up bitterness. Why is that such a big deal? Hey, um, spend time with a lot of older Christians. What sin struggle will you find is pretty dominant? People, this root that was just a little root, little sapling in your 30s and 40s, turns into this big bitterness tree. And the writer says, uh-uh, that's not running. Root that thing out. But let me end with this. In some ways, I'm, I'm ending with something that we said last week. I, I love that this passage has exhortations to do, you know, like strive for peace, not just with Christians, and that's hard. Strive for peace with everybody, hard. Work to be holy, it's hard. Keep yourself sexually pure, it's hard. But at the end of the day, how did this passage begin? Consider him who endured. And for all the things that don't give you life when you meditate on them, the problems in your life, the problems with this earth, the problems in the news, how you thought you'd be different by now and you're not, how you thought you'd be, have a better life by now and you don't, I mean, you can meditate on that, but none of those will give you life. But when you look at Jesus, the great runner, and the reward at the finish line, when you look at him through the word, when you look at him, when you remember him at the table, when you look at him in worship, it puts life in you. Keep looking Keep considering Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.
our Father. We, we hear you and we embrace that you have set a great race before us. You set it and it is our race to run. And we hear you that the race is hard and the training is hard. And we do ask that we would feel your mercy even as you train us and discipline us and raise us. Lord, please protect us from the lie that comes from within or without, that if I'm hurting, then God is against me. We pray that we would see you as the Father that we need, the Father we always wanted, who loves us just right, who trains us just right, who has already forgiven those who believe, and strengthen us to keep running. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.